Time is a funny thing. Sometimes a month can feel like a lifetime ago. Sometimes an experience from long ago can feel fresh in your mind. Time plays tricks on you. Time is an illusion. When you enjoy yourself, you say you had a good time. When you hear a great drummer, you say that drummer had good time. When you're ready to do something, you say it's a good time for that thing. And today, it's a good time to have a good time revisiting this conversation with Larry Goldings, a musician with impeccable time. It was originally recorded in the before times, the spring of 2016. Larry Goldings has been such a major musical force for so long, it's hard to remember a time when he was not around. And yet, you could also say that he's just getting started. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. At this point, I think of Larry Goldings as legendary. He's one of the most accomplished, respected, and admired Hammond organ players alive, and much of his career has been devoted to that instrument. His early work with Maceo Parker and with John Schofield cemented his reputation as one of the funkiest and most elegant keyboard players of his generation. Here he is on Schofield's 1994 record, Hand Jive. Some might call it tasty, some might call it nasty. Somewhere between tasty and nasty is where you'll find Larry Goldings. The trio that he formed in the early 90s with guitarist Peter Bernstein and drummer Bill Stewart has been one of the pillars of his musical life for over 30 years. And the three have remained united for decades. This song, in fact, is called United, and it's from their most recent record, Perpetual Pendulum. The session marked the 30th anniversary of the release of their first record together, the 1991 album, The Intimacy of the Blues. But in fact, the history of the group stretches back even earlier. Goldings and Bernstein had met in high school and they met Bill Stewart in college a few years later. And when Larry and Peter eventually started working regularly uptown at the club Augie's on 106th and Broadway, they tried a few drummers before clicking with Stewart and establishing a collective voice that endures to this day. But time passed, Larry moved to L.A., Bill and Peter stayed in New York, and Augie's that club, the scene of so many important moments for the development of the three musicians, eventually closed and later reopened as smoke. But you know the saying, the more things change, my friends, the more they stay the same. The trio of Goldings, Bernstein, and Stewart plays this week at the newly renovated smoke at 106th and Broadway. Larry has lived in L.A. for years now. He's carved out a reputation not only as a jazz musician, but also a highly sensitive session player, sideman, collaborator, songwriter, and film score guy. He's on so many incredible records. Basically, if you're putting together a dream band, you probably want to have Larry Goldings in it. John Mayer, John Legend, Elton John, John Schofield, John Hendricks, John Pizzarelli, all the main Johns have relied on Larry in the studio. And not to mention... Many of the finest Steves, Michaels, Matts, Bobs, Curtises, Davids, Jims, and James, Madeline's, Rods, Chris's, Nora's, Holly's, Cats, Jane's, Ricky's, Nicky's, Lisa's, Leah's, Luciana's, Bet's, and even other Larry's. Oh, and at least one Leo, too. And Larry's been working with James Taylor for over 20 years. They even tour as a duo sometimes, and that was captured on James Taylor's 2007 One Man Band album. Seems like a good time to uh, take a couple of moments to introduce the band. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> please welcome, if you will, the multi-talented Mr. Larry Goldings. Larry Goldings. Back in 2016 when we talked, Larry was candid about the challenges of staying out on the road with James Taylor for so many months each year how lucky he felt to have the gig, but how much he craved staying home to write and record more. Still, Larry spent much of this year back out on the road with James Taylor. 
In the years since we talked, his online presence has continued to grow. He was always on social media posting clips, not only musical, but also what you might describe as shtick or comedy or somewhere in between. An album he produced and played on for a lounge singer named Johnny Bowtie Barstow was circulated among jazz musicians for years, and I even came to believe that Larry Goldings himself was Johnny Bowtie Barstow, which is something we address in this conversation today. Larry's alter ego, Hans Groiner, claims to be an Austrian accordion player, pianist, educator, and Thelonious Monk specialist who has improved Monk's music by making it, as he says, more relaxing and less offensive to the ear. Uh, my name is Hans Groiner. I am from uh, Austria, the city of uh, Braunau, the uh, home city of uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, but uh, don't hold that against me. Anyway, when I was 10, I heard the Thelonious Monk, um, who uh, I did not like. But as I grew a little older, I uh, discovered that there was some great potential in uh, the music of Monk. And if only, uh, if only certain elements uh, of it were changed. During COVID, Larry posted clips of himself playing and improvising constantly. He started a Patreon page that featured tutorials, live concerts, and all kinds of content. Some of that content continued to toe the line between totally serious and completely surreal. For example, this series of improvisations from the fall of 2021. Iver, In recent years, Larry has also become a regular fixture with Scary Pockets, the L.A.-based YouTube-famous funk collective. Larry Goldings and Scary Pockets even have their own side project called Scary Goldings. They recorded a bunch of albums so far and videos together, and over time, they brought in Larry's longtime friend John Schofield to join them, as well as other viral jazz-adjacent superstars like Mono Neon and Lewis Cole. This is Larry Pockets from the first Scary Goldings record. Listening back to this conversation, I was really delighted to see how well it held up, and I'm so excited to play it for you now. Third-Story.com is the place to go to check the archive, sign up, and subscribe. Many of the folks we talk about in this conversation have appeared on the show at some point, as well as so many of Larry's friends and collaborators. The Third Story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Check out wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their excellent and award-winning content. And it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to help grease the wheels of this organization. If you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Go check out Larry at Smoke This Week and check out the show notes for a list of the songs that you hear in today's episode. Here's me and Larry Goldings, back when times were simpler. Before we met... Some things I knew about you, in addition to your playing, were this kind of outward presentation of a kind of goofy side of yourself to the world, you know, mm -hmm. both in videos that you post and comments on social media and 
Hans Groiner, mm-hmm. if we can speak of him. Mm. And, and as you know, I had a couple too many glasses of wine one night and dug into you real hard about Johnny Bowtie Barstow. <laughs> Right. Um, Who's not me. Who I absolutely was convinced was you. And even when you gave compelling evidence to the contrary, I felt that it was a put on. And that's because... There are no photos of him, for one thing. I still... There are photos Looking at you, I still am not... There are photos of him. I'm doubting my my girlfriend who's got photos of him. But because of Hans Groiner, which is such a great put on, and it seemed like such a wonderful joke that everybody got to be in on and at the same time you give me a look like maybe I'm not supposed to know that uh. <laughs> but there is this kind of absurd sense of humor that you managed to work into both your life as Larry Goldings and also I think maybe is part of who you are as a musician in a weird way that you have a sense of humor that you yeah. know needs to be let out off the leash every now and then I guess it does yeah I was always into making people laugh that's that's how I made friends when I was little and um, found that I could do that. It's funny. Last night I ran into a friend of mine who I went to high school with and she told me that she remembers me doing, not Hans Groiner, but doing the same imitation. It's like this, like what if George Winston, mm-hmm. right? it might have been something yeah. like that. What if George Winston played Thelonious Monk? Uh-huh. And it was like that. And she remembers that from high school, which surprised me because I didn't think it went back that far. I just, yeah, I, I do have a, a uh, definitely a subversive, I like the subversive humor. And I do think it comes out in my playing sometimes. The, the context in which I got to experiment with it was when I started leading my own gigs and I had a microphone. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I started to get kind of addicted to it. Like, oh, you know, wow, that made them laugh. Mm-hmm. And I remember from high school, from doing uh, theatrical performances, yeah. that feeling of making an entire room of people laugh yep. is that must be the greatest thing about being like a stand-up comedian or, or an actor or something so a lot of that came from these little opportunities between songs you know to say something sarcastic or or uh, whatever and really when the internet started to take off and people started to do uh, satirical mm-hmm. things um i just for the hell of it put up um these Hans uh, MP3s on MySpace, and I created this name. I Google. I made sure it didn't, didn't exist. Didn't exist. And then I just created a, a fake bio of who this guy was, a blurry picture of some guy at the piano, mm-hmm. called him Hans Groiner, and just sat back. Didn't send it to a couple people, and then just sat back and was just fascinated by the power of the internet and by the amount of people with that that don't have senses of humor who, who actually believe that this person exists. Oh, and they are offended or... Oh, my God, the comments were unbelievable. Who do you... You call yourself yeah. an expert in fun and people who were really, really offended, and, and I tried to keep it, you know, yeah. hush-hush, yeah. and it was me. Then somebody convinced me, you should come out, you should be him, and, right. you know, and... Um, if I didn't think, if I didn't get any feedback from people that I thought were funny or that, that were not genuine, that it was good, I would, I would have taken it down immediately. Mm-hmm. Because the worst thing is, is when people try, to be, try to be funny and it's not. And um, I'm not suggesting that everybody thinks it's funny. But I've run it, but, you know, it, it just so happens that I can't go to a jazz festival anymore and, and not have people say haunts, you know. And you know what? I guess... I don't know what Pandora's box mm-hmm. I've opened, but 
I kind of, I'm kind of okay with this. Yeah, you know, it's 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 how to mix it. You know, it's like my wife is maybe she's coming around, but you know, she's a very good amateur musician, and it's the seriousness of what I do as Larry Goldings that that is really how she sees me. And so <laughs> I started doing that. She's like, no, 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 no. You're not. You can don't put. You're gonna put that. Don't put that up. Oh, <laughs> you know. And I'm and I had I used to have these arguments with her, like you know, but it's it's funny. People think it's funny. She says, you know, but, yeah, but you want people to keep taking you seriously, you know, as a musician. And she goes, you don't see Brad Meldow with a, no, you, do, you do, with a character. You certainly don't. And, you know, <laughs> maybe she's got a point. But Well, to me, if you know, I don't want to get into a thing with your wife, but I, but I, <laughs> but I do think part of what makes it so funny is it's coming from such a serious musician. I already respected you and, and knew, took you seriously as a musician. Mm-hmm. So that it just made it even funnier that it was you. The underlying message in it or one of them and if there is a mess i'm not trying to make a statement or really i'm just trying yeah. to have fun but how unbelievable it is that people misunderstand that monk was, was the genius that he was and that people still react like he can't play the piano or mm-hmm. you know but even with the video where i'm doing all this slapstick stuff yeah. especially on the the newer one the the master class one i don't think one? i've seen that one. Oh, that's that's funnier oh, actually okay. i think um People are still. If you go to the YouTube comments, they go. They don't. They don't. Get they, it. they think, you know, I'm saying that the, the, the that sus means sustain. Oh, you know, a sustain stuff court. like that. Yeah. And they're, you know, how does how does this guy not not know that it that it means suspended? It's like later I, I drop the fucking you know piano <laughs> cover on my hands and shit like that. And come on, this is a this is satire. I can't resist. That's yeah. just basically what it comes down to. Well, man, we are sitting in the West Village in New York, which is exactly where I would picture talking to you <laughs> because I really associate you with New York. As I was thinking about our conversation, I realized that you know you haven't been a resident for a long time. Yeah. And thinking what it must feel like for you when you come to town, do you feel connected to the city like you used to when you come through for just a few days? Yeah, very much so. I mean, first of all, I know exactly where I am at all times, right. pretty much. Everything just seems so familiar. I still have problems. I'm totally reliant on GPS technology in Los Angeles, which is just the expanse of it and the geography of it is so different from the lifestyle that one has here. And I, there are reasons why I miss that, and there are reasons why I'm okay with what what I've got going now. But in terms of the culture and the jazz scene in particular and the density of of, of players, the, the amount of just, say, rhythm section players alone, that on any given night, if you were stuck and you wanted someone that you could really make some high-level music with, it would be pretty easy to go into my New York phone book and, and just find someone who I'm just going to love to play with. There are certainly people like that in Los Angeles, but I just don't think there's the sheer number of them in terms mm-hmm. of um, what I guess we'd call straight-ahead jazz. I mean, I got real spoiled by the... Somehow I got gravitated into the kind of bebop scene when I got here, which the best thing about that is that it, it always meant um, players with great sounds and great sort of historical perspective and bass players with gut strings and you know I just I just learned to love that and kind of expect 
that, you mm-hmm. know, and um, a real sense of uh, people being so connected to the older traditions of, of the music. And there are people who embrace that in other cities, but it's just kind of crazy how, how much of that you can, you can find in New York. And so I, I do miss that. I do miss the feeling of a, a real scene uh, where you can literally walk out your door and run into people and musicians and friends. And uh, there aren't as many clubs, but I was going to say cl- hopping from one jazz club to one, you know, mm-hmm. you can still do it. It's, it's, it's relative to, to when I was here. Sorry. That's okay. In LA, there's a scene too. There's various scenes that I'm into. There's not just the jazz scene. There's great singer-songwriters scenes and things like that, studio scenes. And there's there's always things that I'm finding out about uh, in terms of players that I didn't know about in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's just harder to know about it unless you're on the scene in the way that I was on the scene here when I was a single person without kids you know I was much more just involved in going out and um it's it's just the time in my life where it's that's just that would be different if I were living here now I wouldn't be I probably wouldn't be living in Manhattan for one thing unless I was uh, a millionaire (laughs) and it was just yeah life changes so you don't you're not necessarily up on what's what's going on nightly on the pulse yeah and I've missed stuff just in my own you know, town of Los Angeles that I didn't didn't know occurred until, you know, somebody told me that they went to hear whoever it is. Hearing you talk about the difference between New York and L.A. and also underlining the difference in who you are today as mm-hmm. opposed to who you were when you lived here. I'd love to just kind of dig into what was happening when you came here. I realized it's 30 years ago yeah. that you moved to New York to be part of the first graduating class at the New School Jazz Program. It sure is. That sounds like a lot of years, even mm-hmm. though I consider you to be very pivotal and of a pivotal generation, uh, connecting that old tradition of jazz that you talk about, that you found when you moved here, mm-hmm. to a more modern sensibility and to more inclusion of other kinds of music and mm-hmm. openness. Mm-hmm. What was happening with you when you got here and what was happening with New York when you got here or with the scene when you got here? I felt New York was just in a gold, still a golden age. I mean, people who were then in their 50s and 60s, just to name some piano players that I would go here at Bradley's mm-hmm. any night of the week for free, I remember when I got here, at least during the week, were guys who were still in the prime of their lives and playing maybe at their best, like Tommy Flanagan and Cedar Walton and Roland Hanna, who was also one of my teachers when I got to the new school, Jackie Byard. Uh, some younger generation guys who were great, like uh, Fred Hirsch or um, Roger Calloway. And I felt it was just the, I was just in heaven. It was seemed like such a vital scene. And um, so I thought that New York was in great shape at, at, that, at that point. It what was, kind of shape did you think you were in at that point? <laughs> I felt that I was um, a big shot when I got here and then, you know, <laughs> realized that, I was just a kid that needed to learn, you know, a lot. You were a bit of a big shot, though, right? I mean, you were already working professionally. You'd already... Well, when I got here, I hadn't been working professionally. But when I got here, I started to pretty quickly work professionally. A lot of that, of the really early stuff, was uh, directly related to Arnie Lawrence at the New School, who, um, in the most uh, classic sense of the term, took me under his wing. I mean, he provided 
At school, he provided situations for me to always be heard by whoever it was he might bring in that week, that day or week, be it uh, Art Blakey or hmm. Roy Haynes or John Hendricks. And I ended up working with John Hendricks specifically because he came in one day and needed a rhythm section to do his master class. And me and a few others were usually chosen by Arnie to sort of be the accompanist for whoever came in. And I mean, talk about just getting exposed to somebody, you know, and, and, and uh, three months later, John called the school to get my number because he's a piano player. So things like that started to happen. And also Arnie organized a um, relationship between the Village Gate and mm-hmm. uh, the, the new school where they had a jam session that the Village Gate uh, organized. And it was two to six every Sunday. And for the first year, I was the head of the, mm-hmm. of the of jam session, which... Um, it was New York and the West Village, the Village Gate. So, you know, how bad could it be? You know, jam sessions can often be bad, and sometimes they were chaos and whatever. But <laughs> mostly, it attracted wonderful players of all ages, and it provided me with a, a set of my own in the beginning, you know, to uh, put together for an hour of my own. And just just that was was just felt like I was learning at such a quick pace. Mm-hmm. Having a, another piano player come in that was obviously more advanced than me and, and or or here or playing with bass players that just had better time or drummers that played tempos that I couldn't do. You know, just things that made it so clear as to what I needed to really focus on. Mm-hmm. I, I still tell people who are going to college and other, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the Midwest or something, particularly those who I feel are really talented, I say, you know, Go to New York. Even even now, it's still it's not maybe like it was, but you'll you know if you want to really get a clear and honest view of sort of what's out there and how you stack up, you'll know immediately. It's not for everybody. It can be overwhelming, but I think I think that should be part of one's experience, whether it's jazz or anything else. Huh. You know, <laughs> you confront you know. yourself here because. Everything is here, and yet I don't think it's possible to arrive here without confronting yourself on a very intimate and possibly very lonely level. So maybe because there's so much of everything here that you come face-to-face with yourself. What we really felt was people so connected to the source of of the music that we were trying to embrace. So that, you know, that'll never be duplicated in in that way. It's nice to know that there are people younger than I who look up to me in, in, in a certain way. Uh, I wouldn't compare it to the way I, w- I was looking up to you know, Tommy Flanagan or something like that, but it's been 30 years, so you know I've done some stuff. But that was, it seemed perfect for me, because I wasn't really interested in, I was, ju- I was just focused on, on learning you know, mm-hmm. and playing and getting real life experience. That's exactly what happened. It only only partly took place inside the walls of that school. It just completely spilled out into the clubs and into the West Village and into uptown to Augie's where I developed this, we developed this band with Peter and Bill. And then pretty soon after that, on the road, you know, with uh, John Hendricks.
first, John Hendricks or Christopher Holiday, who also went to the New School, mm-hmm. this wonderkind, very talented saxophone player uh, from the Boston area, who uh, you know played kind of like Bird and, and Jackie McLean. <laughs> Those are my earliest recording situations and uh, road situations, and and it happened uh, really quickly. I should mention one experience directly because of Roland Hanna that happened. I think my freshman year. Did I tell you about this the last time? No, but I, but no. I, I think I know about it. Did he took you to Europe? And- he took me to Europe, yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, you know, he just came up to me in the hallway one day and said, "Oh, Larry, I think I might be able to take you as a up and coming." pianist uh, to this international jazz party in The Hague and Holland and <laughs> okay yeah I, I can go you know <laughs> never been to Europe and then um, just to describe it briefly it was just it was, it was like the who's who of, of mm-hmm. jazz that was there and it was a three day event at this big hotel in The Hague the special mystery guest was Sarah Vaughan <laughs> and Hank Jones and Cedar Walden and Tommy Flang and Roland Hanna and Harry Sweets Edison and Al Cohn, Jeff Hamilton. Who I remember, I that they they at the last minute they told him that I, he was going to have to room with this kid oh. named Larry Goldings and um, Kenny Washington. Who I remember had his thirtieth birthday. Mm. I remember when we were there. Experiences like that. I've never had an experience like that since. Exactly. Experience, and how did, how did they treat you? How did they deal with you? Very well. Very nicely. I mean, everybody was super warm. Uh, James Moody, I remember, was there, and he was giving me some advice when we were backstage. I, they put me together with, in, a, in a set with Moody, Harry Sweet Edison, Al Cohn, Ray Drummond, and even, either Alvin Queen or Kenny Washington. Mm-hmm. And I was nervous, and uh, Moody could see that, and he says to me, uh, oh, man, you got to you you take 10 deep breaths, just 10 deep breaths like that. Right? And then you just say, what the fuck? You know? And then Al Cohn told me a really filthy joke, which I don't quite remember now. And it was just, it was amazing. It was amazing. My understanding is that you came from a, a very supportive family, but not a family that had any real contact with the jazz community. Oh, not at all. No. But they were supportive. So how did it feel to be so young and face-to-face with this new community that would become part of your, your identity? You knew the music, but... Yeah, I felt a little bit overwhelmed. I felt like culturally it was what's going on. You know, I mean, I came from a pretty comfortable home life and totally different, you know, a a predominantly Jewish neighborhood and comfortable middle-class family. And so it was a little strange, but also I felt very welcomed because I felt like what people wanted to know was whether you could play and it didn't didn't really matter the times where i got you know sort of self-conscious about my background and my upbringing and maybe the background of some other people that i was meeting was like at one point my dad had this had this apartment that he let me use on fifth avenue and 16th street i didn't want anybody to know i was living there you know stuff like that where i felt like Oh, I've got to be a fake. You know, this is oh. not this is not right. You know, I don't want. I remember walking down the street with Arnie, and I, I never invited him to my apartment. It was right down the street from the new school, 
And we were like passing it. Like, and like I didn't want to tell him, okay, I'm going to my, my apartment now <laughs> in this nice looking building. It was kind of silly and immature, but, but also it's just, it's, I, I felt, I think ultimately I'm a pretty neurotic, you know, insecure person. So I think that had a lot to do with it. Just, just this idea of like, I can't be on, on, on the level of, of these guys, you know, uh, these, these older guys or these guys from, from a totally different kind of background who didn't have the type of comfort that I had or whatever it was, whatever I was putting myself through. Um, but I, I went through that. I think it raises such an interesting question for me because I, I think a lot about how um, people's playing has a personality and it has to be somehow linked to who you are as a person. I think your playing and you yourself as a person are somehow linked. And on the other hand, you can come from anywhere and play the music. Mm-hmm. And some of the most beautiful players are not necessarily the most beautiful people. Some of the shyest people in life can be more, some of the most confident musicians. I mean, mm-hmm. there often is a disconnect. Like you say, I'm kind of a, you're kind of a neurotic person, and yet I don't hear it in your playing. I, I hear you as a very confident person in, in your playing. But when I met you, I was actually a little, for the first time, a little surprised that you were a little more understated in real life than I was expecting. <laughs> well, I think... For one thing, um, I have grown, you know, as a, as a person since then. I mean, I've become more comfortable in my skin and more comfortable going back to the early influences that I had before I was really listening to jazz. Like what? Like all the pop music I was listening to. I got to tell Billy Joel that uh, this, this was a great moment and that, you know, I said in the little two-minute space I had to talk to him. Uh, you know, I just want to tell you, I, I basically learned harmony from learning your songs mm-hmm. by ear. And he said to me something very profound. He said, really? <laughs> so I thought we really had a great connection there that day. But um, that was literally the end of the conversation. But <laughs> but that's true. And I've been back in touch with, with Rand Blake recently, mm-hmm. who was I, I was studying with Rand when I was in high school. And Rand really, I think, it was, uh, thank, uh, and I have to thank my previous teacher, Peter Casino, who was a, an excellent local jazz uh, teacher and player in Boston, who, after I'd studied with him for a couple of years, said, you need to move on to somebody else. Mm. And he sent me to Rand. He said, you just need a, uh, I want you to have a totally fresh perspective. What he brought out of me, which was I maybe already, you know, in there somewhere, was my eclectic spirit. And so when you talk about expressing who you, who are. you are, it turns out that if that template has really guided me, not only in how I play in one situation, but how I look at my career mm. and what I, you know, what I want to do, just, you know, how I want to mix it up. I love the fact that I, there was a year where I was getting off one uh, a tour with Jim Hall and then going on to a tour with Maceo Parker. And to me, it didn't seem like anything weird. To other people, it, it was like... It felt coherent to you. It felt coherent. It just felt like, well, that's just, it's, this is great music. This yeah. is great music. It does seem like you maybe know. the decision to leave New York was in part, as you described changing teachers in Boston, a kind of fresh perspective or a refresh mm. on your career. Mm. But also, it, it sounds like maybe it was harder for you to position yourself that way in New York because you were so entrenched in the jazz world that to then raise your hand and say, guess what? I really dig pop music too. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe it was, it was hard to do it, it was. here. It was, it was, there was a jazz police thing going on in that scene that uh, maybe just in general at that, at that time. 
but I embraced it for a long time because there was I just felt there was a lot mm-hmm. to learn. I felt that um, that I had been scratching the surface of a, of a lot of uh, things, and some of that just included uh, getting an, another hundred records into my collection mm-hmm. that I hadn't really embraced. Peter Bernstein had a lot to do with that, actually, even earlier than when I moved to New York, because I, I met Peter at the Eastman High School jazz program. And, uh, in, in high school, when I was I was going to be a junior and he was going to be a senior, even then Peter was playing me Mingus and Bud Powell and really, really convincing me that I needed to listen to Charlie Parker a little bit more, but more, <laughs> and um, <laughs> stuff like that, which I am so grateful. I mean, I really felt like not that I wanted to end up playing like that necessarily, but I just think you gain so much from from getting into that. It's not just the notes and the language; it's these guys played with feeling and sound and the writing and the and the um, commitment and I don't know authenticity. There was just something about it that I, I wanted to try to sound more authentic in that in that way. And th- you know, I think that that helped everything after that. I read something that you said in another interview that I thought was an incredible story. I don't remember who said it to you, but at a session or after hearing you play, somebody came up to you around this time in your life and said you know what I think you should do is go home and throw your records out the window. Paul Blay said that to me. That was another great thing that just happened because of being around the Village Gate. And I think it was probably after one of those trio, you know, opening sets of the jam session. He was hanging out. There was fucking Paul Blay, you know. And he was, he started, he's like one of these guys who would just start in a conversation as if you had been in the middle of a conversation Mm -hmm. with him. We ended up, going to a cafe like on McDougal Street. He brought a cassette out of his pocket and waved the waitress over and said, do you mind putting this in? <laughs> Which, first of all, was completely bizarre. And I remember she was like, she looks at it, she's like, okay. <laughs> and um, puts it in, and it's Keith, I, I, I recognized it immediately, it was Keith Jarrett Cone concert. Mm-hmm. And he never made a reference to it. And the first thing I'm thinking is, you know, it's also based on some of the stories I heard about Paul, his eccentricities and what, this and that. I thought, okay, he's fucking with me. Yeah. He, he wants to create some kind of discomfort in me during this conversation. And this is totally consistent to what I've heard. You know. But we just talked and I forgot about the tape after a while. But <laughs> I think it was in that, that, that conversation where he said, uh, you know, what you really should do is, 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 is gather up all your favorite records and throw them out the window. And he was completely serious. And probably, I think he literally meant that I should do that. And, um, and you f- knew what he was saying? I knew, I, I knew what he was saying. I mean, I think part of me was hurt by it at that point because I maybe had felt that I was on the way to shedding my influences and, and, and coming into something of myself. But to his ears, to, to Paul Blay's ears, that was not the case. And in retrospect, he was completely right. I was still playing all the Bill Evans material and trying to sound like Oscar Peterson. And it was just all sort of a mishmash of the things that I don't think I, I really had me yet. I was writing, I was writing some tunes, and maybe some more of my personality was coming out that way. But nothing close to the boldness of, of what Paul Blay had been doing since early, early on. And so it maybe that advice started to become more and more significant over the years. But I do remember, I mean, embracing it to some extent at that time and just, thank God, you know. And Keith Jarrett tells a story that he told on stage once about Miles uh, saying something like, um, you know, you have to stop playing the things that you love 
too much, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. And yeah, that was, and I had another, uh, we, and now this person, I, I wasn't as familiar with him. And so I didn't feel the weight of it as much as with um, Paul, but, but Mark Murphy came up to me <laughs> once at the village gate. No, some kid came up to me and said, Mark Murphy is here and he'd like, to, he'd like you to come to his table mm. and speak to you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I went over and there he was. And all, he didn't even introduce himself, and he said to me, stop listening to Bill Evans. So I was like, uh, security? No. <laughs> and I remember that night, it was during a gig, it was like after I had oh, played right. a set, and I, I did feel hurt. I was like, who the fuck is this guy telling yeah. me to stop? But again, he was right. He's an elder guy. He's heard everybody, play with everybody. And I've thought about that, too. I was like, you know, I'm kind of glad he said that. You know, you mentioned... Not that I sounded anything like Bill Evans, but, you know, I was trying to, I suppose. Obviously, the influence was, that was yeah. clear. Yeah. When you discovered the organ and started playing B3, you know, I wonder if it allowed you to distance yourself from some of that influence and just find a sound more immediately. Well, apart from the fact that it was... Then, then you're stuck with having to deal with the, the, the Jimmy Smith... You know, problem. But were you coming in with a whole well, baggage a, of of Jimmy Smith? Uh, not as much as as I was coming in with all these other things as a pianist. Right. And you're right. I feel that because I got into the organ, which was completely accidental, and I had no intention of that happening, it does take care of a lot of you know typical problems that piano players have to face. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, is he's either going to be influenced by Herbie? Bill Evans, Chick Corea, McCoy Tyner. I think the organ did allow me to somehow, not that I don't feel like I'm developing or have developed or continue to develop a, a personal sound on the piano, but I think that a personal sound of the organ happened much more quickly because I didn't start playing the organ seriously until I was... In fact, I never got my hands on a real Hammond B3 until maybe 91 or something. Mm. I mean, I made a record on the organ <laughs> when all I really knew was a portable organ that I had been playing at Augie's. And I literally had to ask Mike Ladon, who at that point knew more, was also new at the organ relatively, but he knew a little bit more than I did in terms of some of the basic stops and things. So I remember <laughs> Mike showing me the bass stop that I needed to use, you know, because on my first record I used a, a bass stop that sounded make it sound like a... You pull out too many. Yeah, too many stops. And the vibrato that I'm setting mm-hmm. sounded like a circus organ. And, you know, I think the music is okay. I think we got definitely got better after that. But but I, I, can't, I can't stand listening to the sound of the organ. But the point is that um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that we found a group. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden we had, and, and not just and, and a group that I think is made up of some very strong personalities. Yeah. So it's your personal sound coming into contact at the same time with a group sound, with yeah. a group conception. Yeah. So you met Peter as a younger man, right? as a, as a high school student. Right. We didn't go to the same high school, but he, he right. grew up in New York, and, and but we... And we, we we ended up at that uh, program at Eastman, 
And I think when I interviewed Bill Stewart, he told me that Peter was maybe spent a year or a semester in New Jersey, and that's mm-hmm. where they met yeah. and connected the two of you together. Con- yeah. Made the connection of the three to the three of you. Yeah, had a real immediate connection with Peter. Uh, I literally remember the first day I saw him playing on this stool, and we just yeah, musically and in other ways, I think feel like we're very much kindred spirits, and, and we we both loved uh, tunes, learning tunes, and talking about how beautifully constructed a, a, a tune was. Again, he, he, was, he had heard so much more than I had in terms of uh, especially older records. And, but also like Jaco, he turned me on to like Jaco Pastoria's word of mouth. I remember that summer was the first time I heard that. There was another guy there, there named Joey Cappuccino, who's a great alto player, who was a Duke and Strayhorn um, fanatic. And, and it was there that we heard about, I think through Joey, who was studying with Arnie Lawrence, that this school was going to be started. So that's how I ended up there. That's, I, I heard about the school. Peter said he thinks he's going to go. He ended up spending a year in Paris, though, the, the year that I came to New York in 86. His dad got a job in France, and so the family moved to Paris for a year. We just, when he came back, I mean, we, we, we just uh, hooked up immediately, played all the time. The trio that became me and Bill and Peter came out of an earlier Augie's experience. Augie's, which is now Smoke, of course, where Leon Parker was sort of the, mm-hmm. the uh, reigning king of Augie's. He had like four nights there with different groups, and one night his bass player didn't show up and he, for some reason he knew of me as someone who liked to play bass lines, which was true because I, one of the, my first influences with Dave, was Dave McKenna, New England piano player, didn't, you know, never was as well known as Shearing or any, you know, any of those guys, but Shearing, for example, considered him one of the great solo pianists. And I did. I don't know why Leon exactly thought of me, but he said, can you come up and come up with a DX7 and walk bass lines? Because I can't find a bass player. So even in your piano playing, you had already developed this kind of facility well, and this... Well, that was one of the things that I was emulating when I played solo piano. All I kind of knew was, oh, I guess, I, I guess you walk bass lines if you're alone, you know. Which is not what Bill Evans did, which mm-hmm. is not what a lot of other pianists do, but that's what I... I dug Bill, uh, Dave McKenna so much, the way he would do that. That's how that developed. I started coming up there more, and then I I think it was on that first gig, I just said, well, what about this organ sound? Because I, I, I like this Jimmy Smith West Montgomery record that I have. But it was still never like a thought that I would get that seriously into it. And then 
That's so what the, happened. The organ patch on the DX7 was your first. That organ. was it. That was it. And then it kept on developing. Yeah. Every week or every when the next gig was, I was going to use uh, music shops to try to find some other instrument that was that would that would be better suited to it. And I I had a Korg monophonic synthesizer on a on the on the small on the bottom part of this this multi mm-hmm. keyboard stand. Then I had my DX on top. So I, then I had plugged in both into one volume pedal and so I was figuring out that and then then I got this Korg organ which I used for years which is this one piece manual, with yeah. two, manuals. Oh, two manuals and I schlepped that all around the world when I got um, with Maceo Parker you play on the record right you play I play on, on three Maceo records including on the uh, live one the live one that's a real organ yeah it's gotta be a real one. organ yeah. yeah yeah the personnel kept changing at Augie's and, and then Peter came back Pete introduced me to Bill. We played the, for the first time, I think, at the new school in a practice room. It just felt fresh, you know, because Bill was was very mature and wouldn't wasn't the type of person who would go, oh, okay, it's an organ trio, so I'm going to play like like Joe. What was his name? Joe Dukes or one of those organ mm-hmm. organ drummer. He's just he's just like such a, a very confident about his approach and about his sound and he just you know wanted to make music it wasn't you know I've heard him being interviewed the interview question he always gets is how do you play differently with with the organ trio than you do with and he's always mystified why is anybody asking that to me I just play I just react to music it doesn't matter you know it's not dependent on whether it's a bass player or or an organ player I didn't get any sense when I spoke to him that there was anything dogmatic or particularly overly intentional about it it was really this is how he plays and and people want to know why he plays that way seems like because that's how he plays that's how it came out of him he's an amazing ensemble player and he he whether it's He's just reacting to people and to, mm-hmm. and to sound and to textures and to, you know, he's just trying to be the most supportive player he can be and, and creative, too. So you really developed your organ approach while starting to play with Bill? Whilst pl- starting to play with Bill. How did that affect mm-hmm. your, I mean, I'm gonna, I guess I should flip the question then, mm-hmm. rather than asking Bill, how does playing with an organ change how he plays. How did playing with Bill affect the way you approach the organ? Because you weren't playing with a typical no. shuffle drummer. Well, it fit into exactly my views and aesthetic, you know, in terms of like, I, I also wasn't interested in just playing uh, blues all night and rhythm changes all night. And, and uh, I naturally wanted to keep playing the type of um, varied repertoire that I had as, as a pianist. Mm-hmm. And Peter is a guitar player who is also completely open-minded, loves tunes, loves harmony. We all were very respectful, are very respectful of the organ trio tradition that does embrace more of the blues-based stuff, and, and we do a share of that because it's fun, And mm-hmm. but I can't do it the way some guys have made their career out of it. And it was a way for me to try to come to terms with, like, well, who, well, who am I musically, you know? And uh, how do I make this thing breathe? And how do we take a, a, an Alec Wilder tune mm-hmm. and, and make it right in this, in this context? Well, one thing was, I just loved the way Peter played melodies. Mm-hmm. That brought out the part of me, which was always there as a pianist, that I loved arranging. 
I love accompanying, which I really think of as arranging on the spot.、Mm -hmm. And the thing about the organ is that you really have orchestral, sonic possibilities to do that. Just read a really interesting quote from Chris Anderson. He was a Chicago guy. He was apparently Herbie Hancock's piano teacher、huh. when Herbie was was in Chicago, and he died、uh, maybe in the early two thousands. I remember Barry Harris, people like that, always talking about Chris Anderson. I actually remember seeing him play at Zinos once. Anyway, he has the solo piano record where. He sings a couple tunes. One of them is、uh, the folks who live on the hill. What he's doing behind himself is just so deep harmonically, and he sounds like an arranger. And he says in this quote that I then found on Wikipedia or something, he says, "I was much more influenced by arrangers and orchestrators than I was by piano players." And I completely feel that. Sunday. Hilltop way up high, you and I. Darby and Joan used to be known as Jack and Jill. You'd be so pleased to be called. That is one of the reasons why I love being at the organ because when you're also the bass player, yeah, you've really got total control of not only harmonic stuff, but just the tension, and you can really guide something and influence greatly what's going to happen in terms of the mood and the texture and and the harmony. We're always going to fall into things that we've played before and. Places that we tend to go harmonically, or lines that are we can't avoid playing, but that's why space is so useful. Sometimes I'll just leave space because I know if I hadn't left the space, I would have played something that I that I regret later. Said, yeah, said something you'll regret. Yeah, or said something that I that was just such an obvious answer to the thing that I had played before it, or you know, and I, I just do. And so, getting back to Peter and Bill, yeah, I was. You know, truly inspired by those guys, by as musicians. I mean, Bill to this day will just the, I can I can I can hear I can remember something we did the other night. I mean, you're on a tour together right now. You're、yeah. playing together a lot right now. Yeah. So he did something on a solo that I don't think I've ever heard him do it. Yeah. I mean, if you're around people like that for thirty years, man, if that's not going to rub off a little bit, you know, then you're not there's something wrong. So I'm very very fortunate. I think a lot of my what I've Developed as me on the organ has a lot to do with being able to 
experiment with a, with the same three guys, write specifically for those guys too, whether it's an arrangement I'm writing or a, 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 an original piece, not to mention learning Peter's material, which is vast and beautiful, and Bill's too. Bill has two new tunes on the record that we just, we just recorded. All really open-minded guys, you know, and um, that's nice. Yeah. Well, this is proof that we're in actually yeah, proof in the we're city. Here. Yeah, and it's kind of a relief that I that I don't have to be compared to another great piano player, <laughs> you know, when I'm when I'm at the organ, you know. It's funny when you talk about like you don't want to play the same thing all the time. You don't want to fall into the same habits. You always want to challenge yourself to you know not fall back on the same old stuff. But isn't my sound the collection of my habits? Well, I think like Jim Hall said a, a similar thing. Uh, from his own experience, which also I, I, I think about time to time, that was something to the effect of, um, you know, he just loved Wes, mm-hmm. and there was there was a period where <laughs> he told kind of a dark story where he he got out, he was uh, got out of a car with Wes, and there was a moment where he saw that he could close the the door. <laughs> on Wes's hands. <laughs> okay, this is an example of Jim, yeah. a very cynical Jim, not, not really being serious. But um, And then he said, you know, there was a point shortly after that where I, I just, I, he, Jim was saying this, that, that he's conscious enough of what is unique about him. Maybe it's just a few things. But maybe those few things need to be developed, you know. And if he just, and if he got rid of all the other stuff and just focused on these things that are, you know, at some point you kind of know, I think, that, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I'm not reinventing the wheel, but this is kind of something that I tend to do that I'm not hearing other people doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can really develop that, yeah. you know, and I think that's what he was saying. He's saying he kind of made this conscious decision, I'm not going to be West Montgomery. Nobody is. So maybe I should take this this kind of space that I like and this texture thing that I go for and you know he didn't say this but this is what I'm imagining he's thinking It's incredible that on a very mechanical instrument like the organ, you can really have a sound. You know, I mean, if you have the same stop set up on the organ and walk off the instrument and I sit down, I'm not going to sound like you, even though the, the mechanics of it are exactly the same. Right. So what's happening on the organ that allows people to have their sound? Well, even though there's nothing in terms of like sound production, yeah. like there is on a yeah. piano. Exactly. There's still touch and there's still phrasing and there's still choice of harmonies, choice of draw bars. There's the way you use the expression pedal. You know, like Larry Young was, was someone, and I kind of heard Larry Young a little later than uh, some of the others. But that was something I just noticed immediately. Like that, that's how he was, one of the ways that he was really being expressive and, 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 and treating it like a, like it wasn't just a bundle of wires and, you know, and a cold, you know, electronic instrument. (laughs) ¶¶ 
uh, Billy Preston too, and anybody from that uh, from that gospel era. You know, for all with an organ, it's, it's really a choir. You know, mm -hmm. so you have to, you know, use dynamics to make the thing breathe. You know, so I was, so I think it has it has to do with the combination of all those things and just your choices from uh, from moment to moment. You know. So, but there is still a, a touch and a feel that's going to be different from person to person. Typically, when a person goes from piano, playing piano all their lives and going to organ, they're going to play either too legato. Yeah. And so you lack, because of that, you're lacking some of the rhythmic possibilities you have in terms of your phrasing. I think it is as, as my is my horn you know if I if I could just play a horn you know and that's why I, that's one I think that's one of the reasons why I, I love I love to play it is because you think like how, how would um, how would Ben Webster phrase this ballad or something you know and you know stepping away from the mic with your horn is is you know you can kind of get that effect with using your expression pedal changing up the draw bars as the solo progresses or whatever and then getting into a chordal solo and suddenly you're not a horn you're Klaus Ogerman with, mm. with a horn or you know whatever it is or Joe Zawinul who I always thought of as someone who must have been an organ player mm -hmm. I mean I don't know there's something especially those you know those slow things where he would do with Wayne when he was playing his own bass and then just orchestrating. I, he's he's as much an influence on me as an organ as player. an organ player. Even though I've never actually heard him play the organ, it's it's the same role that, that he was playing. You know, as an accompanist, just orchestrating. Uh, finding sonic support for for Wayne. Bringing in the winds and bringing, bring, just bringing in the different parts of the orchestra, I love that. When you started playing organ, did you start checking out other organ players approaching I the organ? I did, but I wasn't. I didn't get obsessed with. There was one person that I was listening to a lot. If for a while it was Larry Young because he was the first one I, I thought, well, here's someone who took the Jimmy Smith stops, mm -hmm. at least in the beginning when he was playing with Elvin and Grant Green and that stuff. Basically, it was the same setup as Jimmy Smith in terms of the sound, but the language and the feel yeah, and the spaciousness that he got and the fact that when he played with Elvin, that was a model in a way... That was like, okay, you, you know, you don't have to play with a drummer who's just going to be going bing, gang, 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 gang. And, and, and as an organ player, you don't have to be doubling everything on the pedals, mm -hmm. which does something to the time. It really makes it a more of a... This is absolutely, I think, crucial to the whole thing is that you control the time as much as the drummer does. I mean, totally. Jimmy controls the time totally. overtly. Jimmy Smith does it in a way that's still, even though he's... On a blues, for instance, we'll play the same bass line, basically. He'll loop that bass line. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
And that's one of the ways that he can be so independent. Uh huh. Is that he doesn't have to think about his left hand. I mean, he doesn't always do that, but I, a lot of the a lot of those cats do that. But I as love opposed to actually walking lines, thinking about as walking opposed lines. to just always changing up your bass lines like a bass player would. I didn't want to do that because I was so into the idea of I loved bass players. I loved Israel Crosby and Ray Brown, and so I really my immediate approach was to just try to sound like I had some some personality down there, you know. So I didn't want a boring looping bass line. So I really was trying to think of myself as making a statement there and making a statement here mm-hmm. as much as I could, you know. And sometimes that meant, because actually I don't really think I have the independence of the hand, of, of the limbs, the way someone like Brad Maldow has, or, or, or Keith Jarrett, or Abdullah Ibrahim, he can play these, um, you know, repetitive figures in his left hand. And I can't actually really do that very well. was because I'm interested in interesting bass lines, sometimes I alternate in my brain. Like, few, you know, three bars here are going to be kind of hip. hip, And then I, and then I can play simply in my right hand or lay out. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't normally go for the real chops kind of, as Rand Blake used to call it, diarrhea of the hands <laughs> um, approach on the right hand. A, because I, I generally find that a lot of notes get boring. Um, and it's just not the way I think. I've always loved underplaying type of players. Mm-hmm. And when I was with Maceo, I mean, he sometimes used to introduce me as the bass player. Yeah. Because in that role, the lessons I learned from that were just like how important you are as the bass player. That is true in, the, in any context. Were you a big James Brown fan? I was a big James Brown fan, but I had never been any in any bands where I had learned that material or anything like that. So I very quickly did some homework. Although he had told me that it was going to be more of like an R&B kind of shuffle thing. And he didn't know me as... He didn't hear me playing any funk. I think what he heard in me was someone who could be self-contained and, and do the, the swinging jazz thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then little by little, especially when we went to Europe, people were just calling out, you know, pass, pass the peas. Pass the peas. It ended up being evenly fifty percent funk, and uh, eventually it swayed almost all, all to the funk stuff. For a while, I really dug it. I, I will. I mean, I, I love him to death. After a year and a half or whatever it was, you know, I was missing playing with my group and playing stuff that had some more harmonic interest. And Bill Stewart was also part of that that first um, that first band. But it was fantastic. And like I said, it, it really it really got me focused on the role of the bass player. And in a jazz setting, it's just as important. If you're, if that's if that's 
um, somehow failing, um, it's going to really influence the band. So I really try to think about the bass just as much as, as the right hand. And, and again, that might, be, that might influence my choices, uh, my right hand choices, you yeah. know, just because of whatever limitations I come, come, come upon splitting my brain in that way, you know, so. Those limitations actually become a kind of... Sound, yeah. you know, and kind of personality and get me to play simpler and, and get me able to play the time more. Uh, think about the the time in a way that I, that will just help the the group as a whole and and how do you take you know. the, those values back to the piano then after having become an organ player and when you return to the piano do you, do you see them as very separate identities or do you bring some of that thinking or the mentality specifically when it comes to t- playing time a rhythmic comping playing mm-hmm. into the piano did it change your piano playing do you think uh, I think to a gr- d- d- degree. Uh, I think when I play like sort of groove music at the piano or at the roads or something like that, I think I I became a better player, maybe time wise, but maybe just just the the idea of having to turn certain jazz thoughts down. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just it just is a fact that if you play this voicing mm-hmm. on this on in a funk situation <laughs> as opposed to something that's slicker and it's going to turn on some of the you know kind of get off some of the jazz heads actually that's that's the poorer choice you know mm-hmm. and you and you really find that sort of apples and oranges but it's not but in in James Taylor situation for instance well some of that is really it is what it is it's an arrangement specific yeah but even when it's not and you have to make your own choices in that language you have to just be super careful <laughs> What was it like for you when you started playing with James? And you also did all these duo gigs, so you yeah. you had an opportunity to make a lot of choices. Well, by that time, I was I was much more familiar with the the language and uh, and the repertoire. Uh, then then it was only a question of how, how was I going to distribute it amongst these few instruments that mm-hmm. I was playing. And you know, I grew up listening to him, and and I was always one of those guys who was fascinated with the with the sidemen and mm-hmm. i kind of already knew that i that i you can't just go in there as a jazz player and just go, hey james how about this chord on fire and rain instead of that one you've been playing since the 60s no i just knew that that was not only tasteless but not right for the song and not and not i always understood that the reason why i love bob dylan for instance was the purity of 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 it you know you listen, Bob Dylan. You don't miss the fact that he's not playing sharp nine chords, and you know it's just like you hear it for what it is. For what it is, how he puts it together. So I was always interested in how does somebody do that, and I was fascinated with the idea of like a studio musician, like these guys, these 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 names you see all the time: Steve Gadd, Richard T, Greg Fillinganes. You know who are these guys, and why why are they getting called, and 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 how do you make a record like this? Is it is it is it because Grolnick did that? That was was that his choice? But you know instantly when you're playing with James Taylor and you take a chance with someone, you, you just know. Oh no, that's wrong. It's just not right with what he's playing. It's not right. Just it's not the right genre. Walking on country road. 
challenge becomes, all right, is there a place for me somewhere in here? And the answer is sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But that, on the whole, hasn't been that frustrating for me. Lately, there are times on a long tour where I, and you have days off and you're, I'm thinking about what else I could be doing, mm-hmm. whether it's just being home with my kids or playing with my own band and not having to serve somebody's vision. Like I mean, I've basically made my career as a sideman, and in the greatest circumstances I can imagine, and I don't regret any of it. But there are times when I when I feel like, how long do I want to be doing this gig? It's in the service of of this great artist, but not pushing my my own playing and uh, pushing myself as a as a jazz player or as a composer. Uh, yeah, or... and pushing my own career forward as a as a leader. But I really do like getting called for any number of disparate type of situations. It's with the exception of I would say really mindless music where your role is nothing but playing the same thing every night and you're not with musicians that you necessarily look up to that much. That's the other thing with the James Taylor band. It is always stellar stellar musicianship. Nonetheless, how do you train your mind to stay present when you are locked up inside a repertoire that you've seen before? I listen to Jay, I focus on him and his communicative skills and his words, and it taps into, it still will tap into memories that I have of, of, of mm-hmm. hearing these songs. And, and uh, you know, not every night I'm like that, but what he does is so strong and so powerful. And um, about half of the show, there there's, it's more like chamber music. It's like, you know, if you're in a chamber group, you're playing the written note. But last night was just so much more energized than tonight. What happened? What, 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 was, what was different? It's the same. We experienced the same thing. Like, well, you know, and so you, you have to just you embrace those things. Those are the things that you're kind of waiting for. Mm-hmm. This moment when Gad just does the simplest fill into the bridge and you just go oh yeah you know maybe that wouldn't do it for everybody for me that i get excited by that you know i just happen to i'm just still mystified by someone like steve gadd or the sonic choices that that mike landau makes to fill up a space and the tastefulness of, of jimmy johnson and and uh the, how the singer the background singers are singing together I'm, I'm amazed by it i think it sounds like a fucking great band you know and again i've always loved i was in a rock band you know when i was a kid you know i some nights i go you know if, if i'm hearing everything really really great playing i don't know one of his old tunes i want to get that kind of slightly naive mm-hmm. in the pocket sound that carol king had on the, on the piano the piano back yeah. in those days how do you do that you know how do you how do you get that and then once in a while, maybe 25% of the time, I can, I can throw in some Larry Goldings, you know. <laughs> but I, I don't think... Uh, there are not many people that I would want to go out on the road with and do that with. I, I just, it just happens to be that the most authentic funk player <laughs> like alive called me to be, to, to be in his band. I don't think there are many funk bands that I would really be interested in going out with, especially sure. after having been spoiled like that right, playing with Maceo, yeah. and the same goes for G. it's like okay the like the, one of the most iconic folk rock singers 
where do you go from there? Okay, maybe if Paul McCartney called me, maybe you know, it'd be interesting to play with Paul Simon. There are some things that I, I could see myself yeah. wanting to do, but in terms of the James's personality, the people he surrounds himself with, including the crew, everybody's always... It's a good vibe. I've seen tours where, on that level, where management is screwy, things are a mess... You're treated just as a background person, yeah. and so I, I, and he respects musicians. He's surround, he likes to sound surround himself with people that he really respects, and so I'm still getting that part of it. If I were in a situation where I didn't feel that, I would not be a happy. Yeah, I'd not be very happy. I did get the sense when we spoke last time that being away from family for long periods of time was also just not not a good feeling. Yeah, and to, and and to his credit and his generosity he was okay well i don't know how okay he was with it he never i never talked actually talked to him about it but i got word that he said fine fine yeah which it's very uh i guess ultimately flatter i know he wants me there when i can be there it won't always be the case if i start saying you know i can't make this i can't make that but I'll make, I'll make cleveland but i'm not playing cincinnati <laughs> i'm not going back to cincinnati i'm so grateful that he is wants to be flexible like that in that way i'm very very lucky because i still want to be there but it's right now just uh yeah it's too much man i just have to say in general how i maybe should have said this to start with you know you were extremely influential to me personally and when i was coming up i looked up to you and bill and peter and i mean that stuff was so meaningful to me and so informative to me oh that's fantastic and so thank you oh man to talk to you and see that you, who I put on that sort of pedestal, uh-huh. deal with the same issues that me and my contemporaries deal with and that mm-hmm. the people behind me are dealing with and that mm-hmm. it's like, that mm-hmm. it's just a continuation of this thing that we're all on and hearing you talk about it is almost in some way gives me some relief. But mm-hmm. um, but I want you to know that you, you've made a huge impact on a lot of people's lives, mine mm-hmm. among many. Thank you. And it's one of the great things about uh, one of the perks of, of touring, actually. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we went out with, with Steve Gadd, and, and yeah. after every night, we'd sit at the, it was like a press conference, you know, <laughs> just to sign autographs, which I really didn't like at first. I was so exhausted after. It was like, can we just go back to the hotel? And I was like, the one guy was like, we're all sour about it. Until I started to, you know, you started to listen to what people had to say and things that are, that you just don't think about. People who, especially when you go to, places where they rarely get bands like that or celebrities like mm-hmm. Steve Gadd and where uh, it turns out that they've known me you know for all <laughs> these you kind of realize that's that's why you're doing it yeah. you know and uh, it gets you a little bit out of that self it gets you to think more about your audience and and uh, uh, it's humbling it's nice it's very very gratifying so but thank you for saying that Larry Goldings it's been a all pleasure right. My pleasure, Leo. Thank you. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.